Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You guys, I know we have really loyal listeners, but I have never heard from as many listeners as the week we decided to take off. Yeah, well, we did pick a doozy, as it turns out. <laughs> yeah, but I have to say it was kind of heartwarming. Like, they missed us. People you really missed miss us, us. And I'm sorry we went away. You need to back. make sense of too. things. Good luck. I don't I, know if we can. I just want to say we were in – Tammy and I were in Venice. Um, and so while all of – I'm sorry I did not miss you. All, yeah. <laughs> I, I am guys. really unrepentant about missing this week because we ate well – we uh, drank well, and we were in Venice. And so, like, people want to say we should have recorded remotely. I just say, ha, ha, ha. But Susan, I'm glad to be back. It's nice to, be back. to see you. You were not in Venice, Susan. I was not. I was visiting my in-laws <laughs> in New Hampshire. And I'm... You were in purgatory. I could have stood to maybe do a recording this week. Let's just leave it And that. you were in Colorado. I was in Aspen, yeah, So Colorado. you weren't really With the beautiful off. people. I was until all went to hell. <laughs> Got a and the vortex became right where I was standing. <laughs> maybe the common denominator is you, Shane. Ooh. I always like that. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the... <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Rational Security, the What Did We Miss edition. I'm Shane Harris. I've been away for so long, I apparently don't remember the name of our podcast. Um, yeah, we did pick a hell of a week to stop sniffing glue. Um, a lot has happened in the past two weeks. A few things. A few and it's things. a good thing that entering into the Jungle Studio, we find bottles of scotch ready for Oh, us. so many. So many delicious bottles, which we'll talk which about. We're, we're drinking, enjoying some of them. One of which we're drinking now. Right now. This is lovely. I know we're going dis- to discuss this later on, but I have to say, this is, a, this is a nice, mellow afternoon scotch. Yeah. Which is good for three o'clock on a Wednesday. Mm. Especially like right, right before you have to go on television, Shane. Shh, don't tell anyone. <laughs> at least, least of all the people watching at home. Uh, we are here in the Jungle Studio. The gang's all together. Ben, Susan, and Tammy. Hey, everybody. Hi. Hi. This week on the podcast, President Trump has one of the most tumultuous and possibly disastrous weeks of his presidency, or any presidency. Worst week ever. ever. For a president. And no, for, no, for all actually, of us, Shane, really. Wait, wait, wait. It was a fabulous week. It's oh. just been misrepresented by that's, the fake news. Okay. Well, you know, that is a, that's a perspective. Uh, the president then lashes out at his political enemies in unprecedented ways. Lots of firsts in the past two weeks. And the Justice Department releases, for the first time ever, a warrant application to the secretive FISA court. This is a bye week of firsts, y'all. And there are others that we haven't even discussed. Um, so let's, let's, let's first talk about the, what are we calling this, the fallout from Helsinki? How do we the, frame there this? There is no bottom to this pit. Right. So the thing that everybody wanted us to talk about, <laughs> which was the Putin-Trump press conference, uh, where Trump, uh, just to recap real quickly, uh, took the side of the Russian president over his own intelligence agencies and the question of whether Russia interfered in the elections, then appeared to walk it back, then came out and had the press conference where he said, I meant to say wouldn't, when actually I said would. Uh, then there was like a walk back of the walk backs. I think we were on like three back and forths by the time. I don't we know. Got My head was spinning by the end of the week, yeah. which is, I think, kind of the point. Yeah, it was kind of spinning. So uh, yesterday. Here's how much my head was spinning. Yesterday, I recorded the Lawfare podcast, which hasn't run yet, on Brexit with uh, uh, Shannon Mercer and Amanda Sloat and Tom Wright. And we all started it by saying, you know, hey, you've probably forgotten by now about the president's disastrous meeting with the queen and humiliation of Theresa May. But that happened like right before right he before went to NATO. Before and phone. it was like I was reminded in that conversation by 
that we I had actually kind of forgotten about the whole Britain leg of that particular trip. And yet, you know, it it happened just before and it was actually a big deal and it got lost really fast. Well, that's that's yeah. a that's a good jumping off point then. Like, okay, let me ask this. This is a good framing. The press conference was eight days ago, nine days ago. Does it feel like this is all now in the rear view mirror and people have forgotten about it? Or does it feel like something has significantly, maybe even permanently changed in the way we regard the president and the Russia story? So I think that it was one of those moments where the perspective shifts, like as if we're looking at a stage scene and all of a sudden it rotates 90 degrees in front of us and we're seeing everything from a completely different angle. It's not that any of the content was necessarily different, whether we're talking about uh, the London visit, the NATO summit, the Helsinki summit, uh, or all of the many statements from the president and his advisors on Russia's interference in the 2016 election since then. None of the things said were new, but the placement of everything was different. And therefore, we see the connections between these things in a whole different light. Um, and what that means ultimately, I think we still don't know. I mean, I, I think one thing we've seen in the last week is a few more Republicans, both current and former elected officials, come out and say, okay, wait a minute, this is a real problem. Whether the this is uh, Trump's refusal to engage seriously on the question of Russian interference, or for some of them, the thing that's really serious is Trump himself, his unfitness for office, as Christine Todd Whitman put it in an op-ed in the LA Times. So I do think that's new. One of the things we've talked about a lot since Trump took office is what it would take for other Republican political leaders to start to create some distance or shift away. And I wonder whether this is going to be seen as a turning point. So I tend to agree that this actually was more of a pivotal moment or will will be viewed in retrospect as a really pivotal moment, even though, you know, with the with the other, you know, security clearances and, and other sort of outrages that a little bit has dropped from uh, from the sort of the front page. And that's because, you know, like this press conference, um, you know, with Trump and Putin, it has to be seen to be believed. It's not something that you can understand by mm-hmm. reading media accounts. And so for any listener that hasn't actually taken taken the time to sit down and watch it, um, do so because it is stunning and undeniable in a visceral way, right? And and we've like sort of joked about the P tape and what Putin might have on Trump, but we're all rational, level-headed people and, and have sort of been been approaching this with, I think, a healthy degree of skepticism about, uh, you know, whether the conspiracy theories might be accurate or not. Watching that press conference, um, I don't know how any rational person could say something other than something is going on here. I don't know what. I don't have sort of the the perfect account that explains it all. But I know in a way that I didn't really know before watching that press conference that something is going on here. And and I do think that even I think that you see that reflected in the general response, response of congressional Republicans in a way that I think shifts things sort of permanently and shifts things, shifts the perspective in the way that sort of Tammy was touching on. And even though I think sort of the news will move on as we see it, you know, the the Mueller indictment sort of more and more getting added on top of it. I, I think that this sort of kernel of doubt that it has created sort of in, in the minds and hearts of all kinds of people across Washington, D.C., that, that this is going to end up being a really important moment. You know, it's interesting, too, that just today, uh, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee announced a series of hearings on Russia. It's actually striking that even though Congress passed those Russia sanctions shortly after Trump took office and he very belatedly implemented them, uh, the Senate actually hasn't had any hearings on Russia until now. And so I want, I doubt whether um, they would have gone forward with a bipartisan agreement on this set of hearings without the Helsinki summit and the press conference. And just the fact of having these hearings, the first one today with Secretary of State Pompeo testifying as we sit and record here, it's going to keep the spotlight on. It's going to keep the pressure on. 
everything Mueller does now is going to be related back to what we saw at this press conference in Helsinki. Every new incremental news break is going to get related back to that. And Trump is not going to be able to sort of distance himself from this whole question of Russian engagement in American politics. So I like this this question of like, how do we look back on the moment? And I think you're, everyone's correct that it's going to stick, right? This isn't going to be something that we forget happened in two weeks and we've moved on from it. Um, how consequential it will be remains to be seen. But I was thinking about this idea of what's the right metaphor to capture it. And I, I've used the phrase turning point a number of times when it feels like the narrative shifted in a really significant way with a new set of facts. And it kind of got to the point where I thought, I've, I've used that too many times. Like we've turned around the whole story so many times we've sort of seen it all. <laughs> How many and, angles does it take to Right, make like maybe we've actually done the 360 of all of this. And what this felt like in talking to people, particularly in, in the intelligence community, was like a moment of truth. It was sort of that like after this – there, what more do you need to see to decide whether or not you're comfortable with the nature of this relationship? Or as Susan put it, you know, there is something going on here. I don't know what it is, but any rational person would look at it and assess it that way. And it did have this kind of moment of truth of not exactly pick a side, but like really like finally decide like that you're comfortable with this or you think that there is something profoundly wrong about what's going on here. So I want to sound a dissonant note on this, which is that I don't believe in moments anymore. You know, if there were going to be a moment where we were all going to sort of realize, oh, my God, this person, there's something going on here with this person and Russia, I would have thought it would have been when he stood up in front of uh, a large crowd of people and said, Vladimir Putin, if you're listening, I hope you could find Hillary Clinton's missing 30,000 emails and actually called on the Russians to engage in the hacking that they in fact then did and uh, released those those emails. I would have thought the Access Hollywood tape would be a moment. I, you can go – there's a lot of moments where I would have thought, wow – this is a point where, um, as you say, a moment of truth, or as Susan says, a moment where people say there's something you, you can't look at this and not think there's something going on. And I don't know that this is qualitatively different from any of those pr previous moments. The people who are shocked by it, which I certainly am, and I encourage everybody, as Susan did, to actually listen to it. But the people who were shocked are people who were also shocked before it happened, mostly. And our capacity to be shocked anew is much greater than the capacity of the general public to be shocked for the first time. And the evidence of that is in the 538 Trump approval average, which has gone down a full eight-tenths of one percent uh, or so since this event happened. It was right around 42, just above or just below, and it's right now at 41, which is not a measurable thing. And so I'm when I agree that no reasonable person can look at this and not think something is up, but I thought that before. And so my question is, when you say it's a moment, an inflection point, a turning point, turning from what to what? Yeah. So I, look, I do think that's a good question. I think that one of the, one of the things that made that press conference clarifying in the way that Shane was describing, I think, is that the president's decision to accept Putin's narrative over the public judgment of his own intelligence community was so stark. Again, he'd done it before, but not so starkly because Putin was standing next to him. It was so stark that it put everyone who has defended his approach or, you know, sort of softened the edges of what he's saying in the position of having to answer the question, whom do you believe? You know, do you believe 
President Trump what he said about Putin? In other words, do you believe the Russian narrative or do you believe the IC narrative? And so a whole lot of congressional Republicans who for months and months and months have been getting away with saying, well, we need to investigate. It's a complicated story, you know, blah, 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 just had to answer that question one way or the other. And what we saw is that even the modus reticent of those who put out statements had to say, I believe our intelligence com- community. But, but what follows from that? Okay, so they all said, I believe our intelligence community, and I don't think Russia's our friend, and Vladimir Putin sucks. Okay, and so here's so the point. what? I think there are two concrete consequences. One is a foreign policy consequence, and the other is a domestic political consequence. I can speak much more strongly to the first Which is, as I noted, with these hearings that have just been announced, it galvanizes a sort of core group of support, many of whom are suspicious of Russia anyway, but sort of felt given the political situation with the president, they couldn't push it. Now they can and others coming along. And so there's foreign policy enough critical mass to constrain any presidential policy on Russia. And that is important. It's concrete. It's meaningful. And it's important. The domestic consequence, I think, is a little harder to see, but at least what I perceive so far is that it strips away some of the the reasons that people can provide for why this president is still a good president in spite of everything, in spite of the chaos, in spite of the embarrassment, in spite of the circus atmosphere. You still hear people saying, well, because Obama was so awful or because Hillary would have been worse. But they can't, it is much harder for them, let me put it this way, to make the argument that he's tougher, he's stronger, he's protecting America better. And by the way, the longer that he's in office, the harder it is for them to make those arguments anyway, because it's 18 months now on his watch that the United States government hasn't done anything new to protect us against Russian interference. There's another election coming up. That's on his watch. So I think that slowly, slowly what this event contributes to is a stripping away of any positive arguments on behalf of President Trump. And what people are left with is the negative arguments, which is, I hate the Democrats. I hate Hillary Clinton. Good, Susan. Yeah, I mean, look, I I do think that it removes, at, at least for me, um, I have always sort of held in my mind the innocent explanation and the innocent explanation being a terrifying, hugely consequential one that maybe there is no no collusion, no collusion. Maybe there's like there's no there there. There weren't enough exclamation marks in the way you just said that, Susan. Uh, No collusion. Uh, You know, but but what you had was an egomaniacal president so driven by narcissism, um, so unable to acknowledge anything that was sort of contrary to his vision of the world, uh, you know, his, his sort of his embrace of authoritarians and and his uh, his sort of affection for the Putin style of leadership. And I sort of put that in my mind as like, OK, that's really, really bad. But it's it's not treason. It's just, you know, this is this is who this person is. The thing that was different for me about watching the press conference was the meekness, right? Big, giant, bombastic Trump who, you know, stands up and says all kinds of insane things and, and is all about making himself large. He was, he was afraid. He was, he was timid. He was on, at every turn sort of trying in, in the most sort of apparent way to subjugate himself to Putin at a moment in which Every political advantage was there to gain by being tough. Mm -hmm. He had been counseled by his staff to be tough. And so I think what we saw was to the extent that we sort of measured Trump as a purely emotional president or a purely sort of a president who operates on instinct. That's the thing that was so incredibly weird. It's not that the words were different. It's not that the, uh, you know, that the actual positions changed in a meaningful way. It's that seeing them side by side, at least to me, removed that as sort of a, a plausible explanation. And, and now I am left with a lot of explanations that seem that seem of a different type and and without that sort of innocent escape valve. Right. You think that there's something there's something rotten happening here. I do. I yeah. think there's something rotten. Um, before we move on, I just want to make one one last thing. I just a formulation I've kind of found useful 
is <clears throat> a lot of people were that I was talking to right after the, the press conference were saying that they saw and hear the kind of equivocating and the false equivalences that they saw in Charlottesville when he would come out and say, you know, people on both sides were to blame. And that he was sort of using this construct of trying to take no responsibility for anything and at the same time siding with people that we find repugnant, or at least partially siding with them. And I had a feeling that after that moment, you could make the argument, I think a lot of people felt this way, that Trump lost the moral leadership of the presidency, that he becomes sort of a president in name only, but that that moral kind of core starts to fall away. And for many people, maybe it was never there, but that's kind of a moment where the when the opportunity for the opportunity it was is, lost. Is, is exactly is lost. And if you can't stand up and condemn Nazis, then there's a real problem here. There's a moral deficit at place. And I wonder if after I the no Shane, there are some very fine people on both sides. <laughs> just didn't want to condemn the bad right, Nazis. The bad, yes. bad Nazis. So the, the good really Nazis. Bad there, were, there were fine people. In, in and, I, and, I, and I wonder if there's a sin in the way in using the construct of something that is lost, like something a virtue that we need to have embedded in the presidency, and we need the president, the occupant of that office, to manifest moral leadership. I wonder if in the press conference, quite frankly, there was a sense for many people that he lost the loyalty and the patriotism that we expect to come from a president. And that is in some ways maybe even more unsettling for a lot of people. I I take Ben's point about the 538 poll. I also wonder how many people are actually being honest when they're being polled. Uh, I was talking to somebody about this this week who pointed out he actually thought that it would, there was a reasonable chance that when people are asked, particular Republicans, they will say they support him simply because they either want to skew the poll or are doing it as an act of protest, or they're certainly not going to say they support a Democrat. So I'm not sure how much But that much doesn't mean that polls. they're going to – that they won't vote for him. No, it doesn't. I mean, right. But I don't think it's, we should overestimate. The sunk cost fallacy right. will affect yeah, yeah, their yeah. behavior, not just what they tell right. And this is a version of the shy Tory effect claim or the or – the um, no, no, they're oh, proud of it. It's pugnacious. No, but the, but but the point the point is it's it's a it's a it's a way of saying don't take polls at face value, and that's fine. To, but that argument always amounts to the same thing, which is uh, the world looks more like what I would want it to be like than the polls suggest, and that's not to the extent that we accept polling at all. You got to reject. That. All right, we'll put that aside though. But I think that there's something about this idea of. Something that we expect the president to evince in his behavior was not there, and that seems lost, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah, and and I loyalty mean, being that thing, loyalty to country. Right. So loyalty or patriotism. The other thing that I think was lost was the uh, international leadership. A lot of presidents in trouble go on trips abroad because it increases their stature. It makes them look big. This trip made him look really small. I also think just to bring together your point about loyalty and Susan's point about something's going on here, one thing that a lot of people looked at that press conference and saw is, oh my God, Putin really has something on the guy. Now, I don't know that that's my conclusion from it, but that is what a lot of people saw, and it's certainly not an unreasonable reading of the visuals of the thing. Uh, so let's talk about another piece of the fallout from this, and we didn't mention the kerfuffle that Dan Coates, the DNI, got into when he was in Aspen and was taken by surprise by the announcement that Vladimir Putin was being invited to the White House. And he's now been disinvited. Well, now he's been – they're putting it <laughs> off till next year, uh, John Bolton has Until the witch hunt is over. Until the witch hunt is over. Until all witches have been found and brought to justice. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> witch, witch, the worst witch. Yeah, after, I just tweeted that after the witch hunt is a little-known uh, Cole Porter song. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually that's probably true. Yeah. That sounds completely plausible. <laughs> Um, so Trump in an act of what, you know, I think plausibly could be called, uh, vengeance or certainly punitive steps that he took, uh, not long after the summit. One was he did not immediately, we found this out a couple of days after the summit, did not immediately turn down a proposal from Vladimir Putin to allow Russian officers to interrogate Americans, uh, about their alleged involvement in Russian affairs, namely former ambassador to Russia, Mike McFall. So the White House was at least for three days or so considering uh, turning over Americans to Russian authorities for questioning. Uh, and then, of course, we see in the, in the past couple of days, now the president is saying he is moving to revoke the security clearances of half a dozen former officials, all of whom have been critical of the president on Russia, have questioned his fitness for office. Uh, that includes Mike Hayden, J John Brennan, Jim Clapper, Susan 
Susan Rice, Jim Comey, and Andy McCabe. Point of fact, the last two don't even have security clearances anymore, but whatever's beside the point. Uh, if they did, he would take them away. So, I mean, I've been writing a lot about this this week. It, it's hard, and, and I don't mean this as a trying to make a political point here. It's hard not to see this as anything but retribution. Um, there's been no reason why uh, stated why you would take away these people's security clearances. And and maybe, let me start with you to the point of Mike McFall. I mean, regardless of what an administration thinks of the foreign policies of its predecessors, we don't hand over diplomats for questioning to hostile powers or to anyone, right? Right. (laughs) So, I mean, first kind of this is of a piece with what we've seen from this administration and this president from the get go, the allegations of disloyalty against civil servants who were detailed to the National Security Council staff under President Obama, and then were sort of unceremoniously booted from their jobs. We've seen just a host of allegations of disloyalty of people who don't already adhere to the policy or political preferences of the administration. But what's so different about this is that, yes, Mike McFaul was a political appointee as ambassador, but he was serving as ambassador, just like any other ambassador, appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate, swore an oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States, got that commission to represent the United States abroad, and governed by you know, all of the treaties, the Vienna Convention, the other treaties that relate to diplomatic protections and diplomatic protocol, he was, whatever he said or did as the American ambassador in Moscow, he said or did on behalf of the United States of America. And the notion that any government of the United States of America would allow an individual who acted under those circumstances to be individually accountable for those actions to a hostile government or to any foreign government is incredibly chilling. So it's not just about political enemies and McFaul being an appointee of the Obama administration. It had implications for the entire foreign service of the United States, for anyone in the Trump administration who's serving as a political appointee right. in some capital you're abroad, the door, right? Yeah. Right. You're you're creating precedents. You're opening the door to something truly terrifying. Something uh, that undermines the capacity of the U.S. government to do just its basic, basic business. And it also creates an immediate chilling effect for every U.S. official serving abroad on behalf of the U.S. government, whether they're foreign service, civil service, or political. Um, If this can happen to Mike McFaul, it could happen to any of them. It created an immediate uproar, and it was immediately slapped down, mostly, I think, because there was going to be congressional action if the White House hadn't shut it down. Yeah, so I, I think you're I think you're right that, that that's the common theme to to both of them, Shane, that this is about sort of political retribution and political retribution in a way that is consequential. I um, you know, I've been more focused on sort of the security clearance question. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, let's talk about that. Although I think it is it's it's part of the same instinct. Um, you know, so you mentioned that I think it's sort of, it's helpful to to sort of lay out the the underlying uh, way that these things work, and that's that uh, whenever you have a security clearance, clearance, um, your investigation is good. Your clearance eligibility endures for a particular period of time. So a top secret clearance is a five-year investigation. So your clearance eligible for five years from the day your investigation is completed. Um, then being in access, meaning you actually have access to classified information that, that you yourself can obtain, right? So you can go into a database. Obviously, you have to have a need to know, and there are, are different restrictions. Um, you know, but, but that sort of facilitating access on an ongoing basis, that's something that typically is only given to people who are uh, current government employees um, or some people who sort of serve on advisory uh, advisory boards, things like that. So whenever Trump is talking, you know, nobody who is outside the U.S. government is in access. Um, and there's a little bit of a caveat of that, that um, uh, so, uh, it is not uncommon for new officials to rely on former officials uh, in order to execute their, their duties, right? So the current CIA director may have reason to speak to the former former CIA director yeah. about highly sensitive matters in order to ensure that he has the full context or sort of understanding. So the reason why those very, very high level former officials uh, might maintain an additional degree of access really is to ensure that continuity. It's not for political reasons. So whenever Trump is talking about taking away people's security clearances, like it's it's hard to even understand what he's 
getting at. These aren't people who have access to ongoing classified information. They're people who are eligible to have access uh, to classified information. One of his spokespeople has said that he's initiated the process the of mechanism. stripping this. The mechanism. They've begun the mechanism. It's Sounds not even medieval. clear what exactly he means by that. Um, you yeah. know, an agency that sponsors the clearance is going to be the agency that, um, that goes about opening an adjudication to remove someone's security clearance. There's an appeal process for that. It's usually only done for security purposes when there's some reason to believe that an individual is no longer trustworthy. Which they will argue, by the way. And the White House has been flirting with that very thing. Yeah, so I mean, they're accu- because they go on TV, they're well, they're, and they've also they've accused them without evidence of leaking classified information. Yeah, but I, I do think that some this goes back to um, to some of the the conversations we've had earlier about whenever the White House actually gives you its real reason and then later on tries to clean it up. Right, sort it's of the, in the travel pretext. ban. Yeah. Right, they've said you know Sarah Sarah Sanders said it's because they were monetizing their security clearances and they'd made ridiculous allegations against the president regarding Russia. Well, neither of those are reasons why someone has their security clearance taken away. One of them is also not true. Right. And and the the president has really, really broad authority in in sort of in this area. And it's really difficult to to challenge a negative adjudication, right? So um, courts basically refuse to look at it. It's the executive branch gets to decide who gets a security clearance. They get to decide on what grounds they're going to take away a security clearance. And then there's very limited opportunities to challenge that. What's interesting is this might be one of those limited opportunities that these are six individuals who engaged in First Amendment protected speech. The government is retaliating against them in a way that could have significant consequences for them down the road. Now, query whether any of these individuals have any intention of returning to, to government service. You know, but but this might be something that sort of for symbolic reasons they might want to challenge. Um, you know, but but I do think that it's it, it is similar to Tammy's point in that there is a chilling effect here, and the chilling effect does not fall on those six high-ranking officials. It it falls on lots and lots of sort of of middle, uh, you know, middle mid-career right. individuals who, who are going to be afraid about they what happens in the future. millions of people or hundreds of thousands, maybe low millions who have security clearances. Imagine, how about this one? Imagine you were a lawyer who had been appointed to represent a Guantanamo detainee. Right. You know, your job actually is to criticize the administration and administration policy to make legal arguments against it. Uh, and one of the things that – and you're, by the way, not a government employee. Your job is not to praise the president. Uh, not that that's the job of many government employees, but that's clearly what the president thinks the job of many government employees is. It's clearly not the job of, of you know, somebody who's, who's representing uh, uh, Abu Zubaydah. Right. And what is that person supposed to do at this point? Yeah. Or or what if you're just a briefer and you tell the principal something that contradicts their public policy statement? Are they then going to yank your clearance because you threaten to, you know, because the information you're providing threatens to make them look foolish or contradict them? Look, I just think this is another example of, you know, this national security space really did used to exist separate from politics. And I know that that sounds sort of Pollyannish. And yes, of course, politics is always a part of this. But there was this area of sort of pure security in which this stuff, it didn't happen in the past. And I think this is just this is another example of sort of the erosion and sort of just the brazen politicization of what are supposed to be decisions designed to keep Americans safe. And, And I just think there is going to be enduring consequences to this stuff. Well, that sets us up very nicely for topic number three. Um, in, in a, Talk in a, about enduring consequences. Yeah, in a week or two week period of, of, of uh, historic moments, uh, the Justice Department <clears throat> decided to release a heavily redacted version of the application that was submitted in October 2016 to wiretap Carter Page under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, and along with it, the three subsequent renewal applications. So this was about 400-plus pages of material. Uh, Again, much of it blacked out, so we can't see everything in it. We've talked a lot about Carter Page before, and we already kind of knew what was in this FISA application because of previous disclosures by Republicans and then following them by Democrats, the famous uh, memo, the uh, release the memo, the Nunes memo that came out talking about what was in there, how much the Steele dossier was a component part or the entirety of the FISA application. I don't think this is putting those debates to rest. But one thing, and I want to turn, Ben, to ask you this, we've never seen 
a FISA application before, and it's being made public under undeniably political. I mean, you've never seen a well, FISA application. Never, we've never. <laughs> <laughs> one of us in here has seen it. I love that. Um, Susan's like, this one's nothing. Um, <clears throat> I've seen better. Uh, but Ben, I mean, the fact that this is out, I mean, it, it's you can't separate its disclosure from the political forces that compelled it. Uh, although it was a FOIA lawsuit, we should say, by the way, that ultimately did unlock this file by media organizations. So that sort of is to some degree absent of the politics. But this is effectively a, a political moment it's released and it's being consumed by the politics. Is it a good or a bad thing that a FISA application is now out in the public domain? Well, so I don't want to be a hypocrite here. When I was a young reporter at Legal Times, and I did what I think is the first major story about the FISA court as an institution. I think the only major story. <laughs> well, I mean, I, others have happened since, but it was a kind Imitators. of, it was the kind of first. And the Justice Department at the time cooperated extensively with the story, as did the court. And they provided a lot of material, and they actually released a lot of stuff. And one thing that I asked for that they refused to release was the word processing template of a FISA application, like not an actual FISA application. <laughs> Put target's name here. Exactly. It was, <laughs> it was like the, the, the Microsoft Word. I mean, there was probably pre-Microsoft Word, but it was like the... It was the, probably the Word Star template. The mock-up, the Word <laughs> like Perfect. Like the little paper clip. <laughs> yeah, the Word Perfect template would you like that to you would actually write a FISA <laughs> application in. And so... This is so unusual that like that that's how unusual this is. But look, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I requested this. That said, it's it's terrible. Like it may be justifiable to release the body of a out-of-date FISA application at some point so that you can see how the FISA process works. There is no good argument for releasing a FISA application in a matter that is still pending. Uh, the, the Russia counterintelligence investigation is very much still pending. There is no good argument for doing it under political pressure. There is no good argument for doing it in a situation in which you're releasing large amounts of other material that is sensitive, both from a civil liberties point of view and from a law enforcement and intelligence point of view, because the Congress is threatening to impeach the deputy attorney general, and f the president is threatening to fire the deputy attorney general and the special prosecutor. And I think under those circumstances, every incremental thing that you release that you wouldn't normally release is precedential. It's dangerous. Uh, and by the way, it didn't very significantly inform the public because in this case, the body of this material had already been released in the form of the Nunes memo and the demo response to it. You know, I, I think that last point, Ben, is worth dwelling on because I was so struck that immediately upon the release of this document – that congressional Republicans had been demanding, that the White House was browbeating the Justice Department to provide. Before anyone had even seen it, the White House was out and Donald Trump was out with statements saying, this vindicates my view that Carter Page- No should... collusion. No, well, no, not just no collusion, but that he shouldn't have been targeted. Which hunt? You know, that the Steele dossier was a corrupt source for the warrant, etc. And- that was all completely contrary to fact that was very evident in the document that was released. And so it was clear that the, that the release of the document, not the document itself, was the objective here. And it was the objective for very polarized partisan political purposes that had nothing to do with the facts. The facts within the document were entirely irrelevant. And to me, that makes the precedential nature of this much scarier because you know, you've spoken before and we talked about on the podcast the way in which the current administration's approach and the polarization in Congress has led to a breakdown in congressional oversight over the IC, all the structures that were set up after the Church and Pike committees. And, you know, we're now in a phase where because 
congressional Republicans and the White House were willing to do this. And it worked. You know, their base is convinced that the document vindicates Devin Nunes. It doesn't matter what the facts are. Um, there's every incentive in the world for, you know, if Democrats ever get back into power, for them to want to do the same thing. And we sort of slide down this slippery slope uh, in a way that really does degrade the capacity of the United States government to protect American security using these tools. The only people who can be happy about this are the people who believe that these tools are inherently, you know, oppressive and unnecessary and and so on. Those are the only people who can be happy. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I do think it's worth pausing to sort of foot stomp the degree to which this proves Devin Nunes is a liar. Liar, liar, pants on fire, liar. Just unbelievable degrees of misrepresentation, blatant falsehood, and on a matter in which Paul Ryan actually backed him up. And, I, and so I do think that it's worth sort of rewinding the clock and saying, okay, now we have all the information or a lot of the information that was available. Really, Devin Nunes? And really, Paul Ryan? This is what you're going to sort of, you're going to back him up on? And and look, I, I've said it before, I will say it again. Um, Devin Nunes no longer has the capacity to credibly lead uh, the House Intelligence Committee. And, and the fact that he hasn't been removed does ongoing harm to this country every single day. It, it is just, it is unbelievably egregious what we've seen. You know, that said, I, I agree with Ben, there is going to be long-term damage here, in part because of just actual precedent. So, this is the first time that they've released a FISA opinion pursuant to FOIA. That's an acknowledgement by the United States government that, that she, FOIA yep, covers FISA. Covers That's it. actually never been acknowledged before, right? So these things, uh, these things are, uh, you know, they are consequential. You know, the other thing here is, you know, there's a little bit of a trap. The notion that there is still good faith disagreement, right? There are people who who are not yet convinced by the by the facts that are in public and would be convinced if just a few more facts came out. I don't think that group of people really exists. There is so much evidence in public right now, not to say that something necessarily happened, but to say this is a reasonable area for the United States government to be investigating. That the notion that you are re releasing this information in order to bolster your credibility, in order to sort of win people over or finally convince them, that just strikes me as sort of as a, as a fool's errand. There's not anybody who's going to be convinced. And so it's all net loss. You aren't you aren't winning anybody over to your side and you're revealing, you know, sort of all, all this additional information. You know, I, look, I think that um, I think Adam Schiff comes out looking pretty good here. You know, he did whenever you look at at, uh, at the actual application, you know, he he gave about as much information as about as much context as he possibly could have. You know, the other area in which I think that there's there's sort of an alarming precedent here is the civil liberties area. This is describing uncharged conduct by a United States citizen. And and that's not something that anybody should be relishing or cheering and sort of, and if you can imagine the, the different contexts in which there might be really, really sort of a damning consequences if the United States government were allowed to start publicizing warrants, publicizing their allegations, allegations that they aren't prepared to mount in court or, or indict someone on, but just saying, this is what we think that there's a, there's a reasonable problem probability or, or reasonable likelihood, you know, that we do start to get down, I, I think, a pretty scary path. Yeah, I, th I think that actually that point deserves a little bit of amplification because Susan is exactly right. You know, we all have this instinct because Carter Page is a kind of clownish figure and he's kind of absurd and he... Uh, clearly has some issues, and he you know goes. And he on was advising the Russians, and he well, wears that red bucket hat. Yeah, and he's he's a weird guy, and so we have this idea that it's comical. But if you just pause over what the United States government did, which is under political pressure, it released disparaging information about a U.S. citizen collected in an intelligence context that was never intended to become public because people demanded it. And and if you say, like, what could you do with that if that caught on? That is an ugly path to go down. 
Speaking of ugly paths, let's talk about all the things that we didn't discuss on the show. <laughs> so oh many. my God, we haven't even so gotten many. to that yet. The lightning <laughs> round, very quickly. All right, the Paul Manafort trial has begun. Jury selection's going on. How much would it suck if you got picked for that jury? Wait a minute. It hasn't started yet. Well, no, it's No, it's they're happening. doing jury selection, but the judge said it's only going to last three weeks, and I believe it. Oh, okay. Well, sign me up. Uh, Michael Cohen taped his lawyer, Donald Trump. You remember him. I'm taping all of you right now. <laughs> <laughs> right now. Uh, North Korea, not to, not taping anyone, apparently, because they're not showing up for meetings with the United States to cooperate on nuclear. Yeah, but they're uh, destroying their, their missile Oh, they uh, said facilities. would not denuclearize. Yeah. Oh, no, I said I wouldn't would denuclearize. I wouldn't denuclearize. Uh, Maria Butina uh, has been charged for being a Russian agent. Can we just pause for a moment on the fact that that doesn't even make our top three topics right, for this week? right. Straight Hot up, damn. a former American University graduate student who has been on the radar for a while and yeah. seemed to advertise that she was working for the Russian government now has been charged as a foreign agent. I just want to say right now, it. right here, she is my nominee for Times Person of the Year. <laughs> <laughs> Maria Butina. Well, she is. I, when, when we come back to this at the end of the year... I want to talk about Noted. Maria because she is. I would follow her over any hill. Oh God, she is my, she is my hero. <laughs> she really is the Sergei Kislyak of her time. <laughs> so, so good, so cool, so good. One. Congress <laughs> is backing off of sanctions on the Chinese telecom company ZTE. Cowards. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, we had the big New York Times story revealing, which is pretty astonishing, that there was in fact a source, a human source, very close to Vladimir Putin, that played a very important role in the uh, intelligence community assessment. Kind of. New that before, but to see it amplified. Bad in the New, York New York Times. Times. New York Times, stop publishing human sources. <laughs> uh, uh, the GRU. Well, we didn't even talk. We didn't even talk about the twelve GRU. <laughs> it didn't even make the cut. Jesus. Yeah. Oh, there was a hacking indictment, guys. We yeah, all that. Yeah, <laughs> oh okay. yeah. No collusion. We flicked at the UK trip. Turns out Jared doesn't have an SCI clearance, at least not formally. He kind of has a TS. He has a top thing. secret, but he, he doesn't has a TS, have an SCI, so he ACI. can't see half anything. Half in, half out on the clearances. Uh, Peter Strzok <laughs> testified, Jesus, that happened while we were gone. Uh, and Mike Pompeo called out Iran in a speech. We can never yes. take a week off again. <sighs> can we just... We might For need to a record moment, three shows appreciate a week. <laughs> the Trump administration with children in office profiting from their positions, with cabinet secretaries profiting from their positions that Mike Pompeo gives a speech about the corruption in the Iranian oh, regime. Like, so there are a lot of reasons to be unhappy about the Iranian regime, but that was kind of rich. And right now, speaking of Pompeo, my Twitter feed is going crazy because he and uh, Bob Menendez are duking it out on C-SPAN. Yeah, in, I saw that come in, over in, in the email. In, in the Senate Foreign Relations yeah, Committee. It's a corruption off. <laughs> they need a nappy. Um, <laughs> let's go to object lessons. Uh, I'll go first. Uh, there's a terrific story that came out yesterday in GQ. That I want to direct everyone to read by my good friend Julia Yaffe. Such uh, a wonderful story. In which I make a, a, a cameo. <laughs> so Julia and I were picked up in an Uber by a spy in Aspen. Maybe. Pretty much. Wait, Maybe. you were we picked up in an Uber by that same woman like five times? Oh, multiple times. So there's a woman that Julia calls Gloria. That is not her real name. She is Colombian. She's in her early to mid-60s, we guess. She is one of like three Uber drivers apparently in Aspen. I mean, I had her multiple times. I had everyone. I had two other drivers once each had had Gloria multiple times. Uh, and as you'll see in the story, uh, she was basically pumping people in her car who were attending the Aspen Security Forum for information and wanted to know about all kinds of world affairs, most prominently North Korea, because she told us she had been to North Korea. I don't know about you guys. I don't know many people who've been to North Korea. I can think of like four um, none of them are Uber drivers, which is not to say that maybe being if they an lose Uber their driver, security clearances. They just will call be. those. <laughs> should have asked her if she had a security clearance. Um, it is a really weird tale. It was kind of like it's this. It's this sort of jokey thing that Julie and I were laughing about together in Aspen, and then it took a kind of weird turn at the end, which she really wonderfully captures in the story. So. Go read about Gloria, the Uber driver, the spy who drove me, Julia <laughs> Yaffe in GQ. <laughs> Well, well an my object lesson is a gift from uh, two listeners who we uh, know from Twitter, 
And I'm not going to say their Twitter handles so that people don't in order to uh, protect the innocent. In order to protect the innocent, they might identify but, themselves. But later. but Sarah and Jen sent us a wonderful bottle of scotch, which we are drinking. I am bad at pronouncing scotch uh, names, but it's the the uh, Glenmorangie. 12 and it is quite delicious and uh, we are all enjoying it so thank you guys but to listeners who we don't know the sending us food thing uh probably should stop as uh, sweet as it is and we, we love, love you guys we we're just love- incredibly paranoid <laughs> but when the chocolate pentagon showed up <laughs> Uh, we started getting a little nervous. We still have not identified who sent the chocolate pentagon. The Novacek era is just a, it's a tough era. In Stop which trying to, to poison it. us. So we are, um, so thank you to Jen and Sarah. <laughs> and uh, please, others, uh, don't send us food. Thank you. Um, I have an object lesson that is also an article. Um, It is in the Weekly Standard and is entitled, This Former British Spy Exposed the Russian Hackers. It is a delightful profile of our good friend Matt Tate, who some of you may know as Pwn All the Things. Um, It is uh, just sort of a story of how Matt got involved in in the Russian investigation and sort of uh, rose to uh, internet prominence. He's a lawfare contributor um, and uh, a good friend of the Rational Security crew. Um, It's it's a nice profile that I think really captures it's a great photo. It's a, great it's a photo. really good photo, isn't it? And and Matt recently told me dashing. that he needs to be on Rational Security <gasps> because yes. he has been on every other podcast that is on the Lawfare site, the National Security Law podcast and the Lawfare podcast, and he needs to finish his hat trick by being oh, on Rational Security. Right. We should come back we will, on. We will get that done sometime this summer. <clears throat> we should dive back into the archives and do a little Peter Smith deep dive that's how matt and i first got hooked up that was the time uh well we are so glad you guys joined us for another episode we can't promise we'll never leave you again but we're really sorry we left you hanging (laughs) on this week of all weeks but thanks for hanging in there with us rational security is of course a production of lawfare you can find our show page now on the lawfare site it's made itself right at home we have a little housewarming party for it. <laughs> Toast it with scotch. Send it a bottle of scotch. <laughs> so you can find the show page there. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. You can download the podcast and leave us a great rating. Please, Five please. stars would be great. Five stars for this scotch, by the way. It was absolutely fabulous. Thank you again for that. Uh, our show's audio engineer this week is Matthew Kahn. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin and their stellar reboot of Bosom Buddies from the hit musical Mame. Oh, God. <laughs> I was thinking it's, it's Dude, music this week is, is, is Cole Porter's After the Witch Hunt. <laughs> yeah. It could be that. When we discover that undiscovered score. Do Jen. yourself a favor. Go on YouTube, Google Bosom Buddies, Lucille Ball, B. Arthur, and you decide which one is Putin and which one is Trump. Here, here. Uh, and Sophia Yam will be glad to assist you with that and play us out as she always does every week. On behalf of my good friends, Ben Wittes, Tamar Kaufman Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, guys. Bye. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 